Well, last week we left off with Jesus giving up his life with these words, it is finished. And as we saw last week with his death, Jesus established his church, he conquered Satan, he reconciled humanity to God, he completed scripture and handed over the spirit, which in turn uh, anticipated the giving of the Holy Spirit in mass uh, to his people. So this week, uh, we've just been going verse by verse. We're gonna pick up right where we left off with Jesus having just died. This is starting with verse 31, John 19, beginning with verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again in prayer to him. Lord, as we pray every Sunday as we come to your word, and really as the session prays before we ever come into this worship service, we pray that you would be amongst us, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and our minds. And as Isaiah says, that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear, that this word would go deep into our very being, that our feet might follow you, that our hearts and our desires might be attuned to you, that we might love you most because, as John has already prayed, you so deeply love us and you loved us first. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we read in verse 31 that the Jews, uh, in particular the Jewish leadership, did not want the men to remain on the crosses because it was the day of preparation for the Passover, which meant the next day was both the Sabbath as well as the Passover. And part of this has to do uh, with the law found in Deuteronomy 21 uh, that says this, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So in Israelite culture, death by hanging, and this could have taken many forms, including literal hanging on a tree, but also things like crucifixion, was symbolic. God read it as a man cursed by God. So this is part of the reason why the Jewish leadership actually pursued crucifixion for Jesus. They wanted the Jewish people to see Jesus as a rebellious son who was cursed by God. That's part of the reason they pursued it. So according to the law, a man punished in this way had to be buried on the same day he was killed. Otherwise, the dead man defiled the land. So presumably this would especially be a problem on a high holy day, a high feast day like 
uh, Passover. And it's telling that, that the men who pursued Jesus' death were far more concerned about being able to keep the Passover and what dead bodies hanging on crosses meant for Israel than they were that they murdered an innocent man. They were, as, as Jesus called them, whitewashed tombs that appeared pure on the outside, but, but inwardly they were full of sin and malice. And it's similar to what Tim Keller, riffing off of Richard Lovelace, commented about, I would say, some Christians. He said the church can be filled sometimes with self-righteous, angry, harsh people because they give lip service to the idea that they are saved by Christ. But the functional operating system of their hearts is that God loves them because of their purity of life and doctrine. So just like what we see with the Jewish leadership in John 19, it is very possible to give lip service to God's grace and his mercy. Every good Israelite, including the Pharisees, recognized that God had been merciful to Israel in the Exodus and that Passover represented that. So they could say things like, I am the chief of sinners. Even as in reality, we actually believe God loves us because of what doctrine we hold or how often we attend church or who we vote for or what causes we believe in and the list goes on and on. So if a Christian, or, or even a church, because this certainly happens, is characterized by anger or self-righteousness or harshness, you know, at least we're not like those crazy woke types, you know, those, those churches. At least we aren't like those angry Christian nationalists. Well, if we get into that kind of stereotype, we have more in common with those who called for Jesus' crucifixion and their concerns for the appearance of holiness than we do with Jesus himself and his concern for our hearts and what we love most. Even so, here's the thing, neither the soldiers gambling for Jesus' clothes, which right at the foot of the cross, or the Jewish leadership give any impression that Jesus' death meant anything to them. As Thomas Brody puts it, the giving of the Spirit has passed them by, and they didn't notice that Jesus had died. So, in order to keep this law of Deuteronomy and recognizing that crucifixion typically took several days for it to actually uh, kill the person, the Jews asked for the legs of the crucified men to be broken. As I mentioned last week, uh, this would speed up their deaths significantly as the men would no longer uh, be able to support their weight with their legs. And if you remember, essentially, uh, your arms are here and what kills you is suffocation eventually because you can no longer hold your weight and eventually you slowly quit breathing. You asphyxiate, I guess you'd put it that way. And so we read that the soldiers broke the legs of the men on either side of Jesus. But when they got to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. And so they chose not to break his legs. Instead, they pierced him with a spear to confirm he was dead. And as they did it, at once blood and water poured from the wound. And this was a, a sure sign he was dead. Even so, uh, as most commentators recognize, with these details, both with the bones and the water and the blood, John intends us to see more here. Well, as we've mentioned in the previous two weeks, John 
wants us to see that everything that's happening in these moments is neither random or, or by chance, but rather is the fulfillment of Scripture. So instead of it being random, no, this is, this is actually going according to plan, and the plan is an ancient one. So with Frederick Bruner, I, I think John, again, in these verses, is trying to impress upon us, like he's just beating a drum, that Jesus is both the fulfillment of Passover, but he's also the righteous one of the Psalms. And when you take those together, what you should see is the perfect, unblemished atonement for sin that's happening. So John first has in mind, when he says Jesus fulfilled scripture here, John first has in mind the instructions about the Passover given in Exodus 12, 46, where God says, you shall break none of the Passover lamb's bones. Now remember, John the Baptist saw Jesus exactly in these same Passover terms. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, I also think John has in mind uh, passages like Psalm 34:20 that says, "The Lord keeps all the bones of the righteous; not one of them will be broken." And it's helpful to read that that one verse in, in its its larger context of Psalm 34, where it says, "This is beginning with verse 15: The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil." to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Well, Jesus is that guy. Jesus is that righteous one. And Jesus does for humanity what humanity could not do for itself. He is the righteous Adam, perfectly keeping faith with God, and in turn gives that to us. It's like what Spurgeon commented about this passage. He said, Jesus's unbroken bones look backward to the Paschal Lamb, that is the Passover Lamb, but they also look forward throughout all the history of the church to that day when he shall gather all his saints in one body and none shall be missing. None shall be missing. Not a bone of his mystical body shall be broken. So what God does for Jesus he will do for you too. He will do for his people too. So this is not an obscure verse that John just went looking for that fits with what he sees happening in this moment. As if John, like so many bad theological arguments, went hunting for a verse that happened to support his case and said, yep, there it is. I'm being biblical. You know, after all, you can take any verse of the Bible out of context and make it say whatever you want. So, and so for those of you who are old enough to remember, for example, this is exactly what happened with the prayer of Jabez stuff a little over 20 years ago, if you remember that. That sort of thing happens all the time. This is not what John is doing. 
No, John's point is not that Jesus resembles this one short verse written a thousand years earlier. It's rather that God is the author of history and has been bringing about all of history to just this moment, which includes the writing of Scripture. So think of it this way. On the eve of the Exodus, which is when Passover happened, when God commanded that an unblemished lamb be slaughtered and eaten, its blood being spread on the doorpost by way of a hyssop branch, and in turn, the people must not break any of its bones, that wasn't a random ritual as if God just likes to make up strange things for his people to do on the eve of the day when he was going to rescue them from slavery and death, and in turn, command them to celebrate that ritual until he says otherwise. No, God is not willy-nilly and says, ha-ha, watch this one. No, the Passover was instituted by God as a sacrament that pointed his people back to the Exodus, which is the salvation event of the Old Testament, but also forward to the coming Messiah and his greater salvation and the ultimate Exodus. And we can say the same thing with the writing of the Messianic Psalms or with the life of Joseph, or with David, or Joshua, or Moses. All of Scripture points to Jesus. Why? Because the life of the world depends on him. That's John's point. But let's get back to those details about the water and the blood pouring from Jesus' side. This is arguably one of the most difficult passages of Scripture in the New Testament to interpret, in particular when you put it against a similar passage that John writes in 1 John chapter 5. So some scholars see this detail as indicative of the reality that Jesus was fully human and had died a, a real human death. And that's clearly right. That's clearly right. It seems obvious to us but you know that Jesus died, but but some of the most destructive heresies in the early church involved the denial that Jesus was actually human, that he only appeared human or seemed human. That problem actually shows up in 1 John where John says, if anyone denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, then they aren't Christian. So when John says in chapter 1, verse 14 of his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only uh, son from the father full of grace and truth. That was a controversial statement in the ancient world. It was crazy talk and foolishness to say that God would take on flesh and become a fully human man. What God would do such a thing? What God becomes like what he made? Well, today, the heretical tendencies go the opposite direction and deny that Jesus was fully God. And you can see that with the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, Islam, Judaism, and, and what in some corners counts as, sadly, New Testament scholarship. So they deny John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome it. So they, they, they're willing to affirm that Jesus was a man, that He was a human. I mean, after all, he, He's the most attested human 
the most attested person of the ancient world. And so anyone who says, I don't think Jesus ever really existed, just should tell you that they disregard historians and historiography. But they tend, okay, he's a human, he was a guy, but they, they refuse to affirm that he was God. So maybe he was a great teacher. That's liberalism. Maybe he was a prophet. That's Islam. Or maybe he was a, a lesser kind of demigod. That's Mormonism. But certainly he's not equal to God the Father, worthy of glory and honor and worship. It's why to be Christian is to affirm one God and three persons. And if you deny the full humanity and full divinity of Jesus or one or the other, you are not Christian. It's why I think the most important question a person faces is the same question Jesus posed to his disciples in Matthew 16. Who do you say that Jesus is? As an aside, this is why, and I've already mentioned it once, this is why we typically use the Apostles' Creed as our confession of faith on the days we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because in that creed, we confess God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. That is who we worship. Now, in another important reading of these details about the water and the blood, is that they operate as symbols pointing beyond themselves. Not that they're not literal and they didn't really happen. Of course they did. All these details we've been reading, John takes as historical and literal in the sense that they actually happened, but still they point beyond themselves to something deeper. You see, water in John's gospel is sometimes associated with the giving of the Spirit. In fact, I would say most of the times it is. And we saw that last week with Jesus' talk of, of living waters and the Spirit in John chapter 4 and John chapter, especially, uh, John chapter 7. And you especially see it with lines like this one, where Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's, that is a direct correlation with the Spirit. So because of his death, those living waters flow to us in the gift of the Spirit. Now, blood, this is easier, I think, for a lot of people. It, it's associated with his death. And as Jesus says in John 6, those who belong to him will eat his flesh and drink his blood. In John chapter 6, that, that clearly is a reference to his coming death and in turn participation in the Lord's Supper, which replaced Passover and the other high feast days. So with the blood and the water, John sees both the atonement for sins, that's the blood, and the giving of the Spirit, the water, which together are God's self-giving of himself for the world. It's like what John Calvin, riffing off of Augustine, comments about this verse. He writes, Christ brought the true atonement and the true washing for forgiveness of sins and justification and the sanctification of the soul. So this is not some mere death. This is an atoning sacrifice. Now, a third interpretation that I think has some merit, and, and this comes again from Augustine, is that the water and the blood point to the sacraments themselves. Now, 
Clearly, this verse does not institute the sacraments. It's rather that the sacraments find their meaning and their reason for existence in this moment. Or, to put it another way, without his death, the sacraments are empty of meaning and of value. They're just empty rituals that do nothing. After all, as John says in 1 John 5, verses 6 through 8, and this is the, the companion verse to what we're looking at and what makes it kind of difficult to understand, he says, This is he, this is Jesus, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. I think John here is referring to Jesus' baptism, his death, and the giving of the Spirit. Those three things, when you think about it, encapsulate Jesus' ministry from his baptism in the Jordan all the way to his death. And they bear witness to the truth and in turn bring together his life, his death, his ministry, bring together one humanity in Jesus of Jew and Gentile alike through the working of the Spirit. So think of it this way. We are the Spirit-filled people united in Christ who are marked off by baptism and the Lord's Supper both of which were commanded by Jesus to be done until the end of the age and are part of the participation in his life that he gave for us. Now, John brings up this point about the water, the blood, and the spirit in 1 John 5 uh, in the context of witnesses to the truth of Christ. And he has the same concern in our passage here in John 19 too. So in verses 35 through, seven, 35 through 37, John tells us that he was an eyewitness to everything. So he's just kind of giving an aside. He's going through this narrative and he says, oh, by the way, I was an eyewitness to everything. And his testimony is true. And what's more, he didn't just witness these events. I mean, after all, the Roman soldiers and the, the, Jesus' Jewish enemies, they witnessed these things too. He knows what he saw, and he furthermore knows what they mean and what their impact is. So think of it this way. It's not unusual for someone to see something happen, some event happen, and not understand what they saw. This happens all the time, all the time. Even so, that person, because this is what humans tend to do, that person will interpret the event and import meaning to it and be fully confident that he understood exactly what was happening. So for example, we are tempted every day, every day to apply motivation to things people say and do, especially if they are even just a little bit of distance from us. It's why I think Christians should be willing to repeatedly ask, I don't know, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Instead of assuming we know exactly what they mean, but also be willing to say, I don't know why they did that. I don't know why they said that. I have no clue, and it's not right for me to make guesses. You know, even amongst married people who know each other very well, we think we really know what's going on in someone else's mind or heart, that we know exactly what a facial expression means or why they are expressing themselves like they're doing. And you know what? Sometimes we do know, because maybe it's an old issue. 
But many times, we don't. You know, how much more so with people we don't know well? Well, we've already mentioned that, that neither the Roman soldiers or the Jewish leadership grasped the moment whatsoever. And you know, to the soldiers, it's just one more dead Jew. With the Jewish leadership, they assumed problem solved. And life was going to go right back to normal. I mean, it's the Passover tomorrow. We've got to get moving. John, as an eyewitness set apart by Jesus himself, saw the whole scene way differently. You see, credible eyewitnesses and authority figures, they absolutely matter. They absolutely matter. We cannot function without witnesses and authority figures in, in all different realms of life. And John is appealing to his readers to believe him. Because one, he was there for all of it. Two, he was set apart as a witness by Jesus himself, and he was a beloved insider taught by Jesus and taught to recognize what was happening. And then three, because, and this is really the one, Jesus' life conforms to Scripture. That is the Old Testament as, as John read it. So Jesus does not just fulfill Scripture. What John's point is is that Scripture bears witness to Jesus. It bears witness to him. So if you take what he says in 1 John 5, it's the testimony of Scripture. It's bearing witness about Jesus plus eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, which, by the way, is why every book in the New Testament is attributed to an apostle or an apostle stands behind its writing, as well as the ministry of the Spirit. The Spirit testifies to the truth and the reality of Jesus as found in his word. So that means what God has provided in terms of his people, you know, the church who bear witness to him, which, by the way, is what we're doing now. This is what this is. This is bearing witness to his rule and his reign, but also his word and the sacraments, which are physical, tangible uh, sacraments like that of the Passover, which bear witness to him too. These are sufficient means. These are sufficient tools that God uses for bringing people to faith and continuing to build us up in him. So that means your life and this gathering and his word and the sacraments and the spirit at work and all of these things bear witness to the truth and the reality of Jesus Christ. Now, to the world, what I just said is stupid. It's stupid. It's foolishness. Give us better evidence, man. You gotta be kidding me. This? Conform to our intellectual standards. Prove it to me. This is why for the last 400 years, the main attack on Christianity is always centered on Scripture. It's always been forced or looking towards either to discredit it as an authority or to discredit what it says, in particular in our ethical uh, milieu right now. But those who have been given eyes to see and ears to hear, these things move deep in our hearts, and we know they bear witness to the powers and the principalities that Jesus reigns. I am convinced that what we do here now is one of the most political activities we could possibly do because we're bearing witness to the powers and principalities that our God reigns and he has won. 
So it's telling that the creator God of all there is would choose to conquer the world through his son by dying to his enemies on a cross and in turn would use these simple means to spread his kingdom over the whole earth. And the temptation, of course, is to take these things lightly. It's a temptation we, we face all the time. It's to act as if we are not spirit-filled people united in Christ. It's to ignore the treasure or to take lightly the treasure we have in Scripture, both in our ability to read it in our homes, which, by the way, what a privilege that is, but also the privilege of gathering around it together. It's, it's to make corporate worship optional, you know, especially in, in the summer months or during football season or during hunting season or every season, really. It's to see things like the Lord's Supper as merely a once a month additional 10 minutes to our worship service instead of a better Passover and a real participation in his life together. See, these are God's gifts to us. They're God's gifts to us. These are the humble means he's given to us so that we can participate in his life right now and bear witness to the world that Christ really did come in the flesh. And these are what he has used for 2,000 years to bring billions, with a B, people to faith. So let us not grow tired or apathetic or take them lightly because they they testify to our God and the love he has for us. Or to put it better, I think, to end with a, a far better preacher than me, here's how Spurgeon puts it. He says, nothing in this world is dearer to God's heart than his church. Think about that. Nothing in this world is dearer to his heart than his church. And all these gifts that he has given for the benefit of his people. Therefore, being his, belonging to him, let us belong to that church and use these gifts. Well, let me pray for us as we enter into the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, you have given us so much. You have given us so deeply and so richly this word, the spirit at work in us, the sacraments, this body together, all these different parts for your glory and for our benefit. We thank you for them. And we pray that you would continue to build us up through these things. And as we approach now the Lord's Supper, we pray that you would use this as a means of grace for just that purpose. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.